would you say that uh, the um, court's decision to to rule out any historic rights for China uh, throughout the Nine Dash Line uh, is that the major win here for the Philippines and the others? Well, I think certainly uh, from the standpoint of the Philippines' legal team, we have always seen uh, the most central issue in the case. Now, there are other important issues, of course, and happy to discuss them with you, but we've always seen the most central issue as the, uh, the, the nine-dash line that China first put forward as a maritime claim in 2009, um, and uh, by means of which China claims uh, exclusive rights and exclusive jurisdiction over virtually the entirety of the South China Sea. We've always seen that as the, the most fundamental issue in the case and the main target of the case. So you win the main target, which I think, uh, you know, admittedly there were some folks who, who seemed surprised, but, but I think most litigators outside of, of mainland China at least expected that. Um, I don't think most people expected you to win a pretty sweeping victory on, on 14 out of the 15 points in the case. Did that surprise the legal team? We were not surprised um, because when this case was prepared and uh, planned and presented, um, the strategy was to present claims that we sincerely believed were valid, both on the law and on the facts. Um, and we had confidence from the very beginning that these claims were valid and, and that the Philippines was correct in asserting them. Um, and as the case went on and as the evidence developed, um, and I must say as a litigator, trial lawyer, international litigator for almost four decades, uh, the case always starts looking differently after it gets underway and as it progresses. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you, um, you change your views about the validity of your claims. Sometimes you do. Um, but in this case, as the case uh, developed and progressed, uh, our faith, our confidence in our claims actually grew stronger. Now, that said, um, I've been doing this long enough to know you can never be 100% sure or even close to that what any international court or tribunal will do. You may think you have a good idea based on your experience, based on your knowledge of the law and the facts, based on what information you have about the arbitrators or judges, but you can never be sure. You can never count on anything until you have the award or final judgment in your hands. So I would say that we were not surprised, but certainly there were some issues that were more difficult than others, more challenging than others, and uh, we, we, uh, um, uh, we had confidence in them, uh, but we were not certain how they would be decided. 
and were, of course, very gratified, very satisfied that really all of them were decided in favor of the Philippines, as they should have been. Well, I think for most outside observers, the one that nobody was, was really willing to put down money on was the status of Ituaba. Um, thinking that, that that was the point around which several other points in the case revolved, because the ability to okay. say there was no kind of shelf in EEZ um, generated by the Spratleys really is, is what underpinned the idea that there was no delimitation going on here. Um, can you talk a little bit about the evidence presented, the way the the five judges made their ruling on Ituaba, uh, and, and frankly answer the critics, um, not just in, in Beijing and Taipei, but elsewhere who think that that the presence of, of water and soil and, and uh, you know a few crops, uh, that that should be the end of the debate on, on habitability. Well, Greg, you, you have a really impressive knowledge and understanding of the case, um, and it's really a pleasure to discuss it with you. There, um, and if I can give a little bit of context uh, in answering the question, um, it would not have been enough for the Philippines in terms of obtaining its objectives in the case uh, simply to win on the nine-dash line issue as central as that was to the case because there were really two bases on which China was uh, potentially claiming entitlements to um, virtually all of the waters uh, uh, adjacent to the Philippines. One was the nine-dash line, which we always felt uh, was invalid and unlawful. It's plainly inconsistent with the Law of the Sea Convention, which provides specifically what entitlements states can claim. And uh, you cannot claim jurisdiction or rights in the waters beyond 200 miles from, from your coast. Um, continental Shelf is another story. There is a possibility of getting beyond, beyond 200 miles, although China has never asserted those claims pursuant to Article 76. But um, China's nine-dash line claim extended four, five, six, seven, eight hundred miles uh, from its mainland coast and within 30 or 40 miles of the Philippines coast, really obliterating 80 to 85 percent of the Philippines EEZ and continental shelf. It, it's plainly inconsistent with the convention. China argued that it had historic rights. Um, I think it's very clear from the convention that any pre-existing claims of rights based on history or any other extraneous factor would be extinguished by ratification of the convention. All states give up claims inconsistent with the convention when they ratify it. But the tribunal went beyond that based on the evidence, which was that there was no basis anyway in history or otherwise for the so-called historic rights claim because China never, never exercised any dominion or control over the waters in the southern part of the South China Sea. Yes, you can go back millennia and find evidence that Chinese navigators and fishermen were active in these areas as were navigators, fishermen uh, from all of the other polities or entities 
uh, of Southeast Asia. And ultimately, uh, for centuries, it was the colonial European powers that dominated these waters. But as the tribunal found, merely exercising your right to free use of the seas, along with everybody else, navigation and fishing, does not amount to control or authority unless you attempt and succeed in preventing others from exercising their rights in these areas. And China never attempted that, and more power to them for not trying to restrict the rights of others. So there is no basis for any claim of historic rights in the South China Sea, either uh, with or without the convention. The claim is entirely bogus. Now, with the nine-dash line gone, however, the Philippines still uh, would not have achieved its goal uh, as long as China were in a position to claim a 200-mile EEZ and continental shelf from the Spratly Islands over which it claims sovereignty. And this is where the, the tribunal's rulings on the various islands, insular features, low tide elevations in the Spratlys in particular, is so important, it's so critical. By holding that none of these features generates an entitlement greater than a 12-mile territorial sea, or put differently, that none of these features uh, generates an entitlement to a 200-mile exclusive economic zone or continental shelf, uh, the, the tribunal affirmed that the Philippines alone has entitlements in the waters and seabed out to 200 miles off its coast, the coast of Palawan, the coast of Luzon, the coast of other Philippine islands, and that there are no or virtually no overlapping entitlements that China can claim. And this is critical. Um, now, getting back to the basis on which uh, the tribunal made that determination, um, this was one of the most hotly contested issues in the case. And the, the arguments and evidence focused mainly on Ituaba, what, what the Taiwanese call Taiping, because it's the largest of the Spratly group of features. When I say largest, we're talking about something that is less than half a square kilometer in area. So it's the largest of a, of a group of in a, a, a tiny, minuscule features. And the question was how the tribunal would apply Article 121, Paragraph 3 of the Law of the Sea Convention to this feature and the other features. And as you know, you're, you're an expert on this. In fact, you've been to Ituaba, and, and I haven't, so you have you an have advantage there. But uh, the tribunal... Um, um, looked at Article 121.3, and for those who are less expert than you, Article 121.3 provides that an island, that is a, a, a feature that is above water at high tide, naturally, um, will be characterized as a rock and therefore incapable of generating more than a 12-mile territorial sea, that is, it cannot generate an exclusive economic zone or continental shelf, if it is incapable of sustaining human habitation 
or economic life of its own. And those are the key words. And that's the key test. And that's straight out of the convention, Article 121.3. A feature, even though it is technically an island, that is, it's naturally occurring above water at high tide, that is incapable of sustaining human habitation or economic life of its own, cannot get more than 12 miles. It cannot get a 200-mile exclusive economic zone or continental shelf. Now, what makes this case unique and precedent-setting, well, there are many ways in which it's precedent-setting, but here is certainly one of them. I think virtually all scholars and experts would agree that it's precedent-setting in this way. This is the first tribunal, international court or arbitral tribunal, in a contentious case ever to interpret and apply Article 121.3. It's the first tribunal ever to determine what, the, what it means for a feature to be incapable of sustaining human habitation or economic life of its own. And this tribunal did exactly that. And what it said was this, and I, I'm going to read from paragraph 542 of the judgment. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> at page uh, 227. Um, and it says, with respect to human habitation, the critical factor is the non-transient character of the inhabitation, such the, that the inhabitants can fairly be said to constitute the natural population of the feature, for whose benefit the resources of the exclusive economic zone were seen to merit protection. The term human habitation should be understood to involve the inhabitation of the feature by a stable community of people for whom the feature constitutes a home and on which they can remain. Now, this is, I would submit, a very sensible and logical interpretation of the text of Article 121.3. And as applied to Ituaba, what the tribunal found was that in the entire course of human history, prior to World War II, Ituaba was never inhabited by any human population. Sim similarly, none of the other features in the Spratleys was ever inhabited by human beings. Now, the tribunal did find that from time to time, fishermen from Hainan, China, or other places would sojourn there. They would set up a, a small encampment, uh, sometimes for months at a time, but always returning to their homes elsewhere in China or Vietnam or even the Philippines. There was never any attempt prior to World War II to set up any kind of stable community of human beings. And the tribunal found that historical evidence to be of very significant weight. In fact, there's a line, I don't think I can quote it directly, and I don't know the specific paragraph number, where they said uh, that, that human beings have been very ingenious. There's no shortage of ingenuity in establishing themselves in remote or uh, unfriendly uh, locations. Uh, 
uh, and, and finding uh, places to live uh, permanently in, in such locations. But it was never done in the Spratleys, despite the proximity of all of these other populations in the Philippines, in the island of Borneo, and along the coast of, of Vietnam, present-day Indonesia, etc. The tribunal found that very telling. And it also decided that the fact that a number of states, Taiwan, China, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines, had sent military garrisons to install themselves on some of these very tiny features. Taiwan, of course, has set up a military garrison on, on Ituaba. It does not demonstrate that these features are capable of sustaining human habitation. Why? Two reasons. First of all, all of these military units are dependent mainly on supplies from the outside. They could not subsist. They could not sustain themselves solely or even mainly on resources from any of these tiny features, including Ituaba. And second, the tribunal found, and I think wisely, that no weight should be given to the fact that states, for purposes of enhancing their sovereignty claims, have put soldiers or sailors or airmen on these features and supplied them entirely uh, from outside, again, for the purposes of maintaining a sovereignty claim. Now, whether or not their sovereignty claims are valid is outside the scope of this case because sovereignty over the insular features uh, does not arise under the law of the Sea Convention. It was never a part of the case. But it's a fact that Taiwan put these people, put these government personnel, these soldiers, sailors, armed forces on the feature in order to stake a claim to the feature. That's not the same as human beings voluntarily deciding to set up residence to create a community on a feature because they intended to live there permanently. And uh, to me, the reasoning of the tribunal is impeccable. It also serves the interests of the convention at large. The purpose of Article 121.3, as the tribunal noted, was to prohibit excessive and unfair claims to prevent states from claiming large swaths of the oceans and seabeds based on remote, uninhabitable features um, uh, and, and, and thereby aggrandize their own interests at the expense of other states that had long coastlines in the vicinity or at the expense of what they called and is called in the convention the common heritage of mankind. So I, 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 I would say that um, we were not surprised at how the tribunal ruled because we expected the tribunal to be reasonable and logical and fair in interpreting and applying the convention in light of its language and in light of its purposes and objectives. But at the same time, this was an issue that was very hotly contested. In fact, this was contested perhaps even more hotly after the close of the oral hearings than before. Um, uh, Taiwan 
submitted voluminous uh, pleadings, uh, statements, legal briefs, uh, purported facts, purported scientific studies on whether there was water, any fresh water at Ituaba, and what its quality was, and whether there was any soil on Ituaba, and what its quality was, and whether it had the capacity for agriculture, and on and on. Um, this was rather unprecedented. In my entire experience as an international litigator, um, normally, once the oral hearings end, that's the close of the evidence, and all that is left is the deliberation of the tribunal and the issuance of its final award. But because of the unique circumstances of this case and the fact that the tribunal uh, did everything possible to uh, find all the facts, to keep its doors open to anything China uh, or its uh, associated entities like Taiwan might contribute, uh, they received these pleadings and this evidence, and the Philippines did not object. Um, we were given an opportunity to respond to it, and we did. Um, so the tribunal had everything before it. It even conducted its own research into the archives of, uh, uh, of France, into the archives of, of, of the United Kingdom, um, because there had been uh, voyages in the 19th century and early 20th century of British and French ships to these features, and there were records of what was found. The tribunal did an immense job. It was, it, it had a comprehensive view of all of the evidence, had everything before it, and, and it made its decision, and it was the right one. Now, as a result of this, none of the features in the Spratleys gets more than 12 miles, and the Philippines gets to enjoy exclusively its exclusive economic zone and continental shelf. Um, <clears throat> regarding the other Spratleys, it was interesting that in addition to the seven – Chinese features uh, and Kennan Reef and uh, Ituaba, the court also took into consideration, I think it was the four or five next largest, Sea Two Islands, Spratly Island, Northeast, Southwest Caves, uh, and made mention that nothing else is, is an island. Um, as I recall, the court had the, the, your, your legal team submit information on 40-some other features in, in the right. Australia, is that right? So right. I, there's, I think there's a footnote. They don't list them all, but presumably someday when uh, the, the memorial and counter-memorial are published, we'll have a full listing of 40-some of rocks that the court has now ruled are not islands. Well, in addition say, to these, is that right? Let's say 40-some uh, features, maritime features. Some are low-tide elevations. Some are entirely submerged, even at low tide. Others are above water at high tide, but were found to be technically rocks that don't generate more than a 12-mile territorial sea. That's right. I, I, I know the intention uh, of the tribunal and the permanent court of arbitration is to make the pleadings public. That's normally the case once the award is published. Uh, I, I, frankly, I haven't checked the website today, so I don't know if the pleadings have been uh, published yet. But if not, it will be very soon. And I, I think that, that there will be a lot of interesting reading. First of all, there will be a lot of reading there. <laughs> but um, I, I think you'll find the definitive studies of the cartography, hydrography, geography, anthropolo anthropology, history of, uh, of all of these features in the Spratly Islands, as well as satellite photography, 
aerial photography, the official charts of about 10 different states, uh, how they chart um, all of these features. It, it's, a, it's a wealth of information for anyone interested in the Spratleys as a whole or any of these individual features. And uh, it was quite an effort by the Philippines and its experts uh, from international mapping in particular uh, to put all this together. It was a tremendous job. And, and I, I think uh, people who are interested will, will find it fascinating to review the pleadings.